Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I want to speak today about the theme of a mixed blessing because that's where we live. Uh, We live as people who experience, constantly experience, mixed blessing, ambivalent blessing. Uh, I know of a young woman who uh, was rather lonely, and so she adopted this dog. And I said, well, how's it working out? And she said, well, it's a mixed blessing. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, it keeps me active and it keeps me company. But he's shedding everywhere, so it's driving her kind of nuts. Some of you have been there. Uh, Some of you regard your family of origin as a mixed blessing, and you're probably right. Uh, One of the things that I ask in premarital counseling to both the uh, man and the woman is, in terms of your own family of origin, what would you take and what would you leave behind? That is, if you could carry something with you from what you've learned from your family, what would it be? And what would you also push a million miles away if you could? And that yields all sorts of interesting answers. Uh, and then, of course, there are more mammoth and macro issues. Consider atomic power, right, which can light up cities or devastate countries, depending on how it's used. Or the internet, right, used to access information, but also deform our neurology, you know, mixed blessings. Politicians are mixed blessings, right? Uh, it was funny. I was on social media yesterday because I hate myself. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and based on what people were posting, I realized that we've either elected Satan or Jesus. Because I was expecting, based on how people were posting, that I would walk outside and see that the heavens were raining down either fire and sulfur or gumdrops, depending on who won or who was posting about who won. Uh, but the reality is that politicians are probably not messianic. Uh, it's pro- they're probably mixed bags because they've always been mixed bags, and we don't ultimately put our trust in princes because princes are mixed bags. But nevertheless, I digress. Um, that's a, this is just the place in which we live. It's a haven of mixed blessing. And uh, Jacob, also known as Israel, uh, was in this scene about to die. And so he's calling his 12 sons to his hospice bed, And he is uh, saying in verse 1, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. And then at the end of the reading, he calls or labels what he has just uttered to them blessings, right? But but it's confusing because in a way they're prophecies. Here's what's going to happen to you and to your children and your children's children and blessings. Uh, And yet when you read them, These blessings, let's say, are of a mixed nature, a mixed nature. They're uneven in their blending. They're a blend, of course, of history and prophecy, of rage and joy, of poetry and prose, and of bad and of good. And so I want to speak about the bad, speak about the good, and then end with a word of hope today. But we'll speak about the bad at first. Um, uh, There's quite a bit of material within this discourse that is troubling. A lot that could be interpreted as bad uh, because you have a father who is saying to his sons, 
that you or your descendants are or will be immoral, and that will yield negative ramifications for you for hundreds of years to come, and you're destined for doom. And in fact, he says this about six out of 12 of his children. So half fall under the bad category. Uh, they, they see the dark side of the moon, so to speak. And let's go through them just very briefly. Uh, he, he begins rather harshly in verse 3 with Reuben. Reuben was the eldest. What does he say about the eldest son? You're a pervert. That's what he says. You're a pervert. Uh, you were destined for preeminence because you were the firstborn, which meant you were supposed to inherit the lion's share of the estate when I die. But because you did something really naughty with my mistress, I'm mad at you, and you'll never inherit what you should rightfully inherit. So he lost his right as the firstborn. Then it doesn't get better. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi, you people are rageaholics. Yes, you're rageaholics because you like to kill people. And I don't want to be around you because you're just downright dangerous. Then it's verse 16 with Dan. Dan is a corrupt politician. First, he's called a judge, which is a legal position. So he will judge the tribes of Israel. But then he's also called a venomous snake. It's interesting, in the intertestamental literature, that is what was written between Old and New Testaments, Dan and the tribe of Dan are often called Satan worshipers, worshipers of Belial. Anyway, that's, it traces itself back to this passage where he's likened to a snake. Then there's verse 19, Gad. Gad becomes a pirate. Yes, uh, he, was a, he was at one time a victim because raiders were stealing his stuff and he got tired of it or his generations, the generations after him got tired of it and they became pirates who learned to steal from other people. So it was one of those classic the abused becomes the abuser situations. And then verse 27, Benjamin, likened to a predator, a wolf, an unclean animal. It's interesting because Benjamin really isn't a terribly negative character in the Joseph epic, not at all. But again, the father figure, Jacob, is not saying that these children are particularly guilty of these things. Instead, what he's saying is that the generations after them will be guilty of these things. And so he's referring to Benjamin's descendants as wolves, predators. And so we have a list of bad sons or of sons who will spawn bad generations we have a list of bad blessings, or what could be called bad blessings. But I want to say something very clearly about these bad blessings. At least with God, bad doesn't mean disqualifying. Bad doesn't mean disqualifying. All the promises of God given to Abraham were given to all 12 tribes, no matter how they turned out. Uh, I find that fascinating. I find it fascinating that God doesn't need the boundaries that we often need. And God doesn't need a sterile hospital room in which to do surgery. God doesn't need us to fix ourselves before we're worthy of being fixed. God doesn't give up on us when we are fraudulent or messy or beyond help. And so we have this dysfunctional family who receive these uh, relatively bad blessings, if you will, but what's fascinating is that in the long run, and we know the long run because we have the whole canon of Scripture all the way to the book of Revelation, and in the book of Revelation, we see that these tribes and their names are etched into paradise. First of all, all 12 tribes are listed in the book of Revelation. 
in a symbolic way, but they're still there. And the 12 gates of the New Jerusalem are given the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so all of these punks and their terrible legacies are somehow redeemed in the world to come. And moreover, Jesus was so inspired by the number 12 and of the importance of the tribal system that when he was creating his new kingdom, he decided to choose, as we read today, 12 disciples, deliberately mirroring the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and so we, we have bad blessings, if you will, but bad doesn't mean disqualifying. I find that uh, a beautiful insight because it indicates, number one, that decadent sin and family dysfunction doesn't grasp the steering wheel of destiny and drive the car off a cliff. In fact, that wheel is always in the hands of God, and God is always unthwarted by you, by me, by kings, by the world. We're not the protagonist in the story. How relieving. Uh, someone else is. He's good at his job, and he'll steer the thing in the right direction. But secondly, it means God has dirty fingertips. That is to say, he involves himself in the mess of humanity. He's willing to get his hands dirty and bloody. You know, sometimes I find that both the church and the world have a strange assumption about the people of God. We tend to think, and I certainly hear this in the world, they tend to think that if people really are religious, they'll become increasingly uh, free of the human stain and virus, that they will become ideal or even archetypal. This is certainly the world's expectation. I hear it all the time. People speak in shocked tones that the church could be imperfect. I've been hurt by the church. I'm like, well, of course. Like, what, what would you expect? The church is an institution filled with hurtful human beings. Or my favorite, the church is full of hypocrites. As if the person stating that obvious fact is not one themselves. That's just what it means to be a human being. We're disintegrated. What we show on the outside is very rarely what matches on the inside. We do that as a survival mechanism and because we're defensive after Eden. We camouflage ourselves. It's just what we do. I'm not saying it's good. It's just a fact. Why do we have this strange, idyllic, archetypal assumption about the nature of spirituality? I don't know why we have it, but I'm glad God doesn't. I'm glad God involves himself in the mess, and he's not nearly as concerned with our germs as we are not nearly as boundaried off as we are. Oh. And so we have some bad blessings. I'm using that label, as you know, somewhat ironically and loosely. But we also have good blessings, six positive blessings. And two of them, regarding two sons, are fairly extensive. One of the extensive and lofty blessings comes at the end, and it's for Joseph, right? The favored son, the princeling of Egypt. But I actually don't think that's the most significant of the positive blessings within this passage. The most positive blessing falls not upon Joseph, but upon, of all people, Judah. And Judah, given his long and somewhat complex history within the book of Genesis, is a strange person upon whom a blessing can land. After all, he did, Judah, plot the death of his own brother, which is generally not a great thing to do, um, but he felt bad about it, so that's good, you know, progress. Um, uh, but, uh, but more than that, he isn't just a problematic man, he becomes, in a way, a more sacrificial figure because when Benjamin, the younger brother, was under threat, or he thought 
that his brother was under threat, he said, look, I'll take the rap. I'll take the rap from my younger brother. I'll suffer in his stead. So he becomes sort of a substitutionary figure in a way. But Jacob, that is Israel, this dying old man, blesses Judah with a uniquely royal blessing. And that's why it's weird. I want you to read this blessing along with me. This is in verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be upon the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. And from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, a lot of beautiful language and poetry in that blessing, and some of it is hard to understand, but let me communicate to you the bits that are not hard to understand. And they're all royal. This blessing is rich with royal language. First of all, notice the language of bowing. Of bowing. He says to Judah, your brothers will bow down to you. Now, where have we heard that language before? At the beginning of the Joseph epic, Joseph had a dream that his family would all bow down to him. And that did happen in the Egyptian court. But now we have something on the grander scale. A person with more prominence than Joseph. Somebody who would be a regal figure, not just for Israel, but for the peoples or the nations. That is, somebody with international acclaim that would reach to the ends of the earth. Uh, and so we see that bowing, but the bowing now is not to Joseph, but to Judah and Judah's clan. We also have the image of a lion. A lion is a royal image now. It was a royal image then. You, you uh, of course, know that the lion is often referred to as the king of the jungle. Well, this title later gets applied to Jesus, who, according to Revelation 5, is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, so he is the great fulfillment of this princely monarchical vision. Then there's the image of the scepter. That's another royal image. Uh, and it, uh, it, it suggests or prophesies that Judah will offer the world a line of kings. So Israel's kings will ultimately come from this clan. And that does happen from David to Solomon all the way to Jesus Christ, who in his own genealogies is referred to as a son of Judah. Uh, and, and lastly, we have the image of a vine. That image is sometimes applied to Israel as a whole, that Israel becomes the wild vine of Yahweh that needs trimming. But Jesus later applies that image to himself when at the Last Supper, you know, after he takes the cup, as it were, and declares that it's a cup of his blood of the new covenant, he says to his disciples in John's gospel, I am the vine, and later I am the true vine, referring back in part to this very passage. And his garments would in fact be washed in the crushed blood of grapes, in a sense. <laughs> that image, by the way, of his garments being washed in the blood of grapes is often an image for wrath. Right? So whenever God stomps down on the grapes, 
uh, that's an image of wrath being poured out. What's fascinating, though, is this time it's this man whose own garments are covered in that blood, uh, which is also fulfilled in Jesus. And so we have this royal blessing being given to Judah and to Judah's, Judah's descendants and more in a more focused way, his descendant, singular. So we have a mixed blessing from the patriarch Jacob, a prophetic blessing stuffed with good and bad gifts that shape the future for hundreds of thousands of people over hundreds and even thousands of years. It's a mixed blessing. But he was not the only one to utter a mixed blessing in Scripture. Another man did it. And in fact, offered a mixed blessing to Jesus Christ when he was an infant. His name was Simeon. He picked up this infant in front of his confused, no doubt exhausted parents, and said while holding the baby, I can die because now I've seen what I need to see. But here's a little oracle for you. This child will be the glory of Israel and a light to all the nations and he will cause promotion as well as demotion among many people. And then he said to Jesus' mother, and a scimitar will plunge through your chest. A sword will pierce your heart over this child. Referencing his death to come. So in other words, this child will create a lot of delight in the world and also a lot of pain for you. A mixed blessing of a sort. But I think that in this world, as it's currently constituted, mixed blessings are all we can count on. And our lives will be, until we cross the Jordan, a bit of an ambivalent blend. You know, our marriages will be mixed blessings, hopefully more good than bad, but a mixed blessing, you know, we'll experience both wide-eyed delight as well as wincing struggle. Our jobs will be mixed blessings. They'll offer us provision for our families as well as a lot of sleepless nights, maybe a panic attack thrown in on occasion. Our emotional lives are certainly mixed blessings. They terrorize as well as edify. A poet once remarked that we are Mona Lisa's with rain damage. We are bombed out cathedrals. But it's both, the beauty and the terror. And that's what it means to live in a world of mixed blessings. Brennan Manning, uh, the ex-priest, sadly now deceased, uh, wrote this about his own um, mixed nature. He wrote, I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. <laughs> I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest, but I still play games. Aristotle said that I am a rational animal. I say that I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. Yeah, I like that. And so we live in a world of mixed blessings. And yet our Christian hope does not rest upon the concept of mixed blessing or balance between yin and yang, of a gray horizon a combination of the light and the dark, and that's all we can hope for. No, our rest, our hope, rests upon a solitary descendant from the clan of Judah, someone who will hold power in blistered hands, someone with the power of a lion, but without the temperament of a lion, 
someone whose body will bleed like crushed grapes, a man who will become a curse for us, that we might receive grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing. This is the benefit of having Jesus instead of Jacob. I'm not saying what Jacob said at the time wasn't rightful, it was. But I am glad that Jesus offers a different word. The blessings that Jesus gives to his offspring are not mixed. Or to quote 2 Corinthians chapter 1, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you is not both yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. We have a better word spoken over us, because the curse or the negative was born by someone else, fully and forever. So upon us, the people made so ambivalent by the mixed blessings of parents, of government, of DNA, upon us, a word of healing, nurturing, empowering, blessing falls, unalterably. To all of us, the man who trembles with ALS, the single mom with two jobs, the frustrated laborer who sees no meaning in his life, none at all, God in Christ has given us, has given you a neon sign that says yes, and his yes endures forever. Amen. Free at last, they took your life, they could not.